This episode was brought to you by the Foreign Policy Workgroup. The Foreign Policy Workgroup aims to empower young folks with the tools they need to affect global change throughout their lives. In high school, I was lucky enough to be part of this group and it had a huge impact on me. We traveled several times to the nation's capital to meet with global leaders like John Ashcroft, Michael Hayden, Paul Wolfowitz, and more to talk to them about what it means to be a global leader. To learn more about the Foreign Policy Workgroup's plan to create a generation of effective global leaders, visit their website at foreignpolicyworkgroup.com. <sighs> well, Lucas, oh, I'm sorry. I just woke up. Uh, <laughs> I was reading Comey's book, and I uh, fell asleep. Well, that was funny. That's a good one, right? I'm Eddie Michelson. I'm Lucas Anderton. And this is Go Wonk Yourself, episode... 10. 1-0. We made it to episode 10. We made it to double digits. And now we're famous. Yep, we're famous. We're so. officially famous. Guys, well, guys we, we had our first real uh, episode. Or <laughs> This is our first real episode. We had our first real guest on the podcast uh, this week. We had Secretary Sylvia Burwell. Um, we'll talk more about her later, but it was, it was an awesome interview. It was a great interview. It was a great time for all of us. I think we all had fun doing it. We did. So uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy that. There was fun on many sides. <laughs> Lots of fun. Just fun all around. On many sides. <laughs> so I guess we'll just jump into the news and then we'll you know get to the part that everyone actually wants to listen to, which is the interview. I'm sorry if you can hear sirens in the background. We live in D.C. Um, and there's um, no shortage of sirens in D.C. Yeah. Uh, neither of us did anything. So <laughs> this time, <laughs> all right. Let's so, talk about the news. Right. Okay. So, uh, in court papers filed before the hearing, Mr. Cohen's lawyers had said that he had represented three clients on legal matters in the last few years. That's according to Axios. Uh, yep. Where I steal everything. Yes. Um, two of them, everything comes from. Two of them, the lawyer said, were uh, President Donald Trump and a Republican donor, Elliot Brody, who resigned. Uh, as RNCW finance chair over a $1.6 million payment that Cohen helped arrange to a former Playboy model who became pregnant during the affair. Um, it seems like there's a bit of a trend with the kind of work that Cohen does. <laughs> and so, but there were three big clients. Um, I've never heard of a lawyer only having three clients, but let's just roll with it. So the lawyers refused to name the third client, suggesting that he didn't want to be associated with Mr. Cohen at this point. However... The judge forced him to say it. With Stormy Daniels sitting in the courtroom, Mr. Cohen had to say who his third client was, and who was it, Eddie? It was Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity. Who, uh... Also, I guess, has illegitimate children with porn stars. <laughs> we all do. Every, every, yeah. um... It, it seems like every, uh... Political actor at this point. Um, so, he denied these, uh... Allegations that, uh... Michael Cohen was his... Dude, it was weird. I, so I don't know if any of you followed this, and maybe you did, but... So, Sean Hannity has a radio show, and he was live on the radio show when all the major news outlets revealed that Cohen had... Cohen, he wanted to give the judge the name of the third client in an envelope, and the judge was like, say it out loud. And Cohen... Not Cohen. Hannity was on the air when this happened, and... He literally denied it. He was like, Cohen's never been my lawyer. I he don't... also tweeted about it, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, and he was like, Cohen's not my lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Like, I I never talked to Cohen in this way. And then later that night mm -hmm. on Hannity's show, he said that everything he's ever talked about with Cohen is protected under attorney-client privilege. So he went from Cohen's never been my lawyer to Cohen is my lawyer and everything I've ever said to him is protected. And then the next day he denied it was actually Bill O'Reilly in disguise. Yeah, this this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before 
on the last podcast episode is that when you have something like this come out, it's better for, it's better for you to own up to it initially and say, look, yeah, I had Cohen as a lawyer. Maybe he was kind of a shady guy. I didn't. I don't really want to be associated with him anymore, especially with with uh, what's going on. And that would have been fine. Like people would have been like, all right. And then once it comes out in the courtroom, it would have wouldn't have even been really news. Yeah. But now that he's come out and said this never happened, it just it adds fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously liberals are going to have a field day with this. And I'm sure uh, oh, we are. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and like. He's saying, oh, the only thing I ever talked to Cohen about was real estate. You all know how much I, I hate the stock market. I, I only talked to him about real estate deals. And if he would have said that at first, that would have been one thing. But, like, he denied it, and then he was like, oh, he is my lawyer. It's just but, a bad look. But now it's bringing out all these revelations of, like, apparently Hannity and Trump talk almost every day on the phone, and Hannity is one of the only people who has the direct number into the Oval Office. He apparently calls Trump He called him three time. times on election night. Really? Well, that's what he said. He said he called, uh, I, I think I recall this, on, on his show he talked about the fact that on election night he called him three times. The first time was to wish him luck before the uh, results came in. The second time was to tell him that things were looking pretty good for him. And then the third time was to congratulate him after he won. So th- those wow. were the three calls that uh, he made to uh, President Trump on uh, election day. It's just interesting to me. Like, apparently... According to sources in the White House, they discuss what Hannity should talk about on his show and what Trump should tweet. That seems screwed up to me. Like, I think there's supposed to be a barrier between the government and the media. And the, the and maybe MSNBC did the same thing with Obama, but it never became public that they were coordinating what Rachel Maddow should talk about to make Obama's agenda look better. Well, I think Fox News doesn't even have to be that overt with it because... Obviously, Donald Trump watches Fox and Friends, and he'll tweet about what they're talking about in there. So, really, if they just (laughs) decide what they're going to talk about, they can basically influence his tweets just around that alone. So, it doesn't really have to be that uh, direct of a line to the president. Um, So, I I don't know. So, we'll see where that goes. This is certainly interesting. I mean, we are literally... I mean, today Bernie Sanders tweeted out about Cardi B and listening to her policies. Uh, We are living in just an absolute... This total <laughs> sidetrack. Did you see that Bernie Sanders got money from donors that are tied to super PACs? I did not. His latest FEC reports that came out Monday for Q1 of 2018, allegedly the Wall Street Journal reported that there there are he got money from donors who are connected to super PACs and like maybe it's all a bunch of nothing, but Bernie is like totally anti-super PAC. Yeah. And what the article claimed is that he's basically taking money from super PACs, just not in the... It's okay, it was 100,000 installments of $30. (laughs) That's how his average donation became $27. (laughs) Apparently he's running again. Uh Uh-oh. That would be so bad. The first question is, is he going to make it? (laughs) The second question is, why? Why, Bernie? Apparently uh, that, there's a market for Bernie Sanders still. Look, he does have a big following, and it's a lot of young people, too. I just wish that we could have Bernie without Bernie. Yeah. Like, the message without the 90 I don't want either, but <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> okay, but anyway, so uh, our Dearborn leader, James Comey, oh, had a no. primetime interview with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, Eddie, let me get oh, through no, it. Oh, no, I'm going to fall asleep again. In his hour-long primetime interview uh, with Amy... <laughs> All right, with ABC's <laughs> George Stephanopoulos. Did anyone watch this? I watched it. I think didn't I, I'm pretty sure Stormy Daniels got more views than James Comey. Comey I'm sure she did. Rated. <laughs> well, you know, but she's a pro at getting I, lots of views. Can we like? Can we just talk? I think James Comey has really 
uh, he's really played the general public in a in a pretty significant way. He's jumped uh, from being hated on both sides to being loved in some weird we still way. Still hate him. You, you, the left still hates him. I yeah, most of oh, us. Still a lot can't of people love him, uh, and the media sure loves him now. And that's so weird to me because James Comey should be the most hated man in America. His ego got in the way, and it still and is if, getting in it, the way. And for for him to try and prove that he's not a partisan, he threw the entire election. He also there was an investigation under Trump at the time, and he didn't reveal that. He only felt the need to reveal that. Hillary was under investigation to try and prove he's not some partisan hack, which we all already knew he was. I'm just well, kidding. Well, he also he's said in, um, I don't know if it was this particular interview, it might have been, I, I, I'm almost certain it was, but he said that he didn't want to, um, well, he wanted to reveal uh, the, um, do you they, remember? They found it? something in Anthony Weiner's laptop. That's what it was. And he said he didn't. Uh, yeah, he said that there was something on... There was an e- email exchange. When Anthony Weiner was being investigated, yeah. they, and found, she, they found Hillary's emails on it, which made them be considered insecure and he, or he wanted to. He said he wanted to bring that up because he expected Hillary Clinton to win, yep. and he didn't want that to influence her presidency or corrupt her presidency. If it came out after she was president, yeah. so, I mean, that this he withheld is kinda, the information. That's, like, an interesting reason. I don't know if that's a very compelling reason. Well... So, right before the election, there was a poll done by, I think it was, oh man, I think it was a Wall Street Journal poll, where they were, it was a question about, would you vote for someone who's under FBI investigation? Um, and a, most Americans said no. Both of our candidates were under <laughs> FBI investigation. It's just nobody knew we're at the time. We're living in another world. We really are. I mean, how many people are in America? 300 million or something? I don't and know we how have many. to pick two people who are under, here's the thing, like, I... Since this election, I'm afraid that our standards have been completely diminished. We, we used to live in a time where being president was... You look for the person in America who represents what it means to be an American and what a American leader looks yep. like. And now the bar has been set so low due to these awful, awful candidates yep. that I'm, I'm really afraid that we're going to uh, choose someone who appears to be slightly better than these candidates, but still doesn't meet the standards that we've set in the past. Like, this is the office that was occupied by Lincoln, by Well, let's even look at at Barbara Bush past, rest rest in peace. Her and George H.W. Bush were two of the most classy people on the planet. Yep. Um, and, and I was looking at a picture of, of him taking the oath of office and he, I mean, he looked like a Kennedy. He looked so young and vibrant and it was just, you, there was a certain class and dignity to the office of the president. Um, and Reagan had it. I'll say that Obama had it. These were just such dignified people. And, and I love Hillary Clinton. I'll admit that. But like, (laughs) but it just it lost its dignity with this election. It didn't matter who won, because whatever Hillary Clinton has been painted as, it's not a dignified person anymore. And so even if she won, it would have been a mess for the next four years. Sure as heck wouldn't have been for the next eight years. She wouldn't have won again. Yeah, I my hope is that with the next election, we will be so hungry for a return to what we once knew to be what a presidential figure looks like that we will as Americans come together and pick someone who will 
embody that once again. But I don't know I'm, if it'll I'm be a this skeptical. one. I don't know if it'll be this election because this election will be a referendum on Trump. Yeah. And so this election, it'll be whoever has the most feisty. Um, it, whatever Democrat wins is going to instill anger and frustration in people to win. They're not going to use hope and change they to win. They don't need to at this point. Yeah. Um, and they have to use fear of Trump to win. So I think 2024 is going to be the year that we restore. That'll be the year that maybe we see someone like Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely think you're right on that, especially because I think with this next election, it's going to reach its boiling point. Oh, yeah. And people are going to... Uh, after... 2016 and now 2020 people are going to be so sick of it that they're going to try to move the other way the pendulum will swing in the other direction hopefully hopefully it won't just keep going uh further and further into the mud i mean we we don't know at this point but uh uh, (laughs) we can be hopeful so um i guess now we should talk about american intervention in syria and beyond because syria has been in the news nonstop uh because of the recent strikes with um from america and our allies on syria uh so i think this brings up a important debate about the extent uh to which america should intervene in other countries and where we should draw the line where we should draw red lines and whether or not we should uh be the world's policemen so our generation has grown up in an age of the americanization of the middle east um, in 2003, we went into Iraq, and as much as we want to say the Iraq War is over, it's not. We still we still have active militant or like military actions going on there, and and a lot of people think that at this point it was just the neoconservative movement of George Bush's administration loved Americanizing places. It, it like it's this whole concept of not just liberating a country, but spreading American ideals to that country, even if American ideals don't work in that country. Um, and I think it gives rise to these folks like Rand Paul, who are totally anti-interventionism. Um, and well, but that, that sort of isolationism actually exists on both sides, too. It does. It's something that transcends party lines. We got um, some people who are more hawkish on the left, Hillary too. Clinton. Yeah, and then we have people who are more interventional... Uh, I'm sorry, isolationist yeah, yeah. on the left. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders would mm-hmm. uh, fall into that camp. And then on the right, you have the same thing. You got um, like Ted Cruz saying we want to carpet bomb to oblivion ISIS. And then we have Rand Paul who doesn't want to touch other countries in terms of intervention. So it's definitely something that the debate exists on both sides and between both sides as well. And it's a really complicated issue. I think a lot of people want to run as an isolationist but then when they step into the office it doesn't work out that way because they understand just how complicated these issues are and what it looks like to be an isolationist well so that's where that in my introduction to Clegg class Clegg is my silly major here at (laughs) AU it's communications (laughs) pre-law economics and government and we have to take this like intro seminar class called intro to Clegg and we were talking about American interventionism and where it goes the spectrum of American isolationism American interventionism and then this like beyond intervention where you have to intervene 
and then try and turn it into America. And that's where the, the line is drawn. I don't think America will ever succeed in isolationism. We will always be an interventionist country. It's just whether or not we intervene the right way or whether or not we intervene, overturn a whole government, and then try and turn it into an outpost of America. Yeah. We tried doing that with Iraq. I don't like, think interventionism is inherently a bad thing at all. I think if we see a if we see blatant human rights violations existing around the world, we have to at least send a message saying we're not going to tolerate that yep. uh, because people's rights are being clearly violated. But once we start saying um, to the general public of that country, uh, I, I, we talked about this on the last episode, but basically saying, like, don't you want to be us? Don't you want to be America? And then the uh, the citizens of that country say, well, fuck you. No, we don't. We don't want to, like, we have all this culture and... and thousands of years of history and we're not just going to give that up just to become america so it's a really fine line between intervening for the sake of protecting human rights and uh sending a message about human rights violations yep. and then also going that extra step and trying to implement american ideals across the globe and i think there there's a very uh legitimate space for debate within that and to what extent we should intervene uh, or not intervene because if you look at where we've intervened and where we've chosen not to, you can find a lot of inconsistencies with uh, America's... Saudi Arabia still exists. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is the perfect demonstration of that. Saudi Arabia was just as screwed up as Saddam Hussein, but we really liked Saudi Arabia's oil, so we left them alone. At least women can drive there now. They can. And that new guy, I can't think of his name, Ben, I don't know, the new crown prince who's traveling the globe and... Uh, and like he seems like a, for in terms of Middle East standards, he's a pretty progressive guy. Um, and but like, I mean, we we went into Iraq and we tore the country apart, and then it it's just the hotbed, and it forever will be. Um, Libya, uh, as far back as like Vietnam, it it's just a mess. And I think Japan was one of the only examples where it went well. It like, did go well, and I think that it's it's interesting to see just what can happen and also if you want to install a democracy the entire point behind a democracy is that the people have to want it yeah and they have to be active engaged participants in the democracy otherwise you're just going to take out the dictator in power and there's going to be a power vacuum and then you give rise to groups like isis yep. who, and it, that's no better mm -hmm. we've been now we have to fight isis too <laughs> it's just it's a it, it creates a mess and I think a lot of it has to do with how the citizens choose to engage with the power that they're given uh, and the direction they want to go uh, when a dictator is taken out yeah. of power. So, all right, well, I say it's time to transition. Um, so let's talk about our guest today. Uh, Secretary Sylvia Burwell, or President Sylvia Burwell, is the 15th president of American University. She's the first woman to serve as the university's president, and she was officially sworn in just last week, actually, but she's served uh, throughout this year. Um, she earlier served as Obama's 22nd United States Secretary of Health and Human Services, and before that, she served as the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Um, in the I, actual I, interview... I just want to jump in and say, when we asked her about her background today, you guys are going to hear this. We were sitting there like, 
holy shit like yeah like she has a lot she's of stuff done a lot twitter bio but it doesn't even begin to cover she goes back in politics as far as her high school career she worked for lbj in the summer and obviously you'll hear this in one second but like and then she was like deputy chief of staff for bill clinton yeah where did that come from <laughs> um so we are so glad she came on the show and we had a fantastic discussion with her so uh let's listen let's roll it All right, well, just a quick disclaimer to people watching. Um, you're actually a um, placeholder because uh, we couldn't get Wonk Cat on, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, we tried to do the Wonk Cat, but she has a busy schedule. Yeah. So. She does. As a matter of fact, I actually just had a conversation about Wonk Cat yesterday. And, you know, there's a second cat on campus. Do you know about the other cat? I heard the, the other day about the other cat. I think it's Max. Cat. I think it's the name. I'm not Max? sure. It's, I'm not sure if Max <laughs> is the name. But the other cat, and I do want you to know that Wonk Cat actually you know one of the things about the cats you know a little bit of work in terms of taking care of issues on campus that cats sometimes do um but wonk cat has now become a celebrity and so wonk cat doesn't quite work as much <laughs> as the other cat yeah. so i just want to put in a plug for the other cat too uh who's doing some hard work out there for our campus so but i love wonk cat see wonk cat as I walk to work every day. When I get back on my bike, That's though, awesome. with the weather warming up, I probably won't see Wonk Cat as much. So for anyone that doesn't know, who doesn't go to AU, there is a cat on campus that has lived right outside of our School of Communications, and slowly over the past few months, a home has developed for the cat. People started feeding the cat, and then I think it was the Residence Hall Association built the house, or the cat a house. I think so. And but, I think um, the cat has a fun me site, I was told. Oh, oh really? <laughs> That's incredible. So anyways, let's get right into it. So you've had some amazing work experiences, obviously, um, but your current role as president of American University is your coolest one, in my opinion. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the jobs you've had before becoming the president of American University? Sure, um, I can. And yes, this is the coolest one so far. <laughs> um, I'll actually start back when it's a little bit closer to when you know where you all are in your lives and, and your careers and most of the folks who are, are hearing and watching and thinking uh, about it and so I have been fortunate and during my time actually when I was at university I actually worked on the hill uh, for a congressman I was an LBJ intern one summer I worked in the governor's office I worked for a consulting firm and I studied abroad uh, in terms of even as I look back and think I've had lots of cool jobs and that sort of thing but in thinking about it some of those experiences have been terrific experiences too I studied uh, at the Institute of Balkan Studies in Thessaloniki Greece um, oh after my freshman year. And so all of those experiences, and then of course spent time at McKinsey and Company yeah. uh, in the private sector, worked on financial uh, institutions there, then went to work on the Clinton campaign, after the Clinton campaign, then I was in the Clinton administration for all eight years, start to finish, first day to last day, and worked at the National Economic Council when it was first created. Then from there, went to the Treasury Department where I was chief of staff to Bob Rubin, then came back and was deputy chief of staff to President Clinton, and then was the deputy director of OMB. After that, I spent 11 years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and then went to the Walmart Foundation, uh, where I led that foundation and led our work on women's economic empowerment around the world, and then was the director of OMB and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Some may say, I can't hold a job. <laughs> wow. Well, that's awesome. I you woke up this morning. So. 
<laughs> I've made it through a third of a year, of, or uh, three-fourths of a year of college, so I'm catching up. <laughs> That's why I began at the beginning uh, so. in terms of my summers, which uh, I was fortunate to have great work experiences uh, during the summer. That's fantastic. So as President Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary, you were responsible for managing and overseeing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you probably saw better than anyone the effects of this health care bill. And Eddie and I talk about health care a lot on the podcast, so we were wondering if you could tell us what were some of the major outcomes of this bill. So uh, I think why you talk about it often is because health care is something that interacts with everyone's lives. And whether it's your own health or that of a family member or a friend, it's something that we all focus on. And when you think about the Affordable Care Act and its impact, or you think about health care at all and health care policy in the U.S., I actually think while it's a quite complex topic, one can simplify it in terms of affordability, access, and quality. Those are the three things that most people on a day-to-day basis think about. And so while very complex thinking about it, on those in terms of access, 20 million folks who previously were uninsured now have health insurance. Those numbers are going down due to things that are happening right now, but 20 million people um, have access to health insurance. And what does that mean? You know, I've met the woman in Texas who had MS, and until she was able to afford and get health insurance, said to me, I'll tell you how you treat MS. You get sick enough that you go to an emergency room. And she showed me her health care card, you know, her card. She would just gotten insurance, so she had her insurance card and was going to go and see a neurologist. And so whether it's examples like that, this is a work, she was a working mom uh, with uh, three children. And, you know, that's access. The questions of quality. And for many of you uh, who will eventually be 26, but until you're 26, you can stay on your parents' plan. And whether, it's that, <laughs> and whether it's that or the issues of pre-existing conditions. So for many of you all, um, you know people who either have uh, you know, heart disease in terms of older people. You may even know your colleagues that have asthma. Or you may know some of your colleagues who have mental health issues and challenges. And for those people, pre-existing conditions can no longer keep you out. And so quality in terms of some of the big areas of progress. The last area is affordability. So for many of those 20 million, what made the difference was their ability to afford health care. But even if you go outside the marketplace to where most people get their health care, in the United States, 150 million people get their insurance through their employer. And what we saw in the period um, right before I left is we saw the percentage of growth Healthcare costs were still growing, but they were growing at a rate in terms of premiums for a basically a working family were growing at a level less than they had, almost half in terms of it was about 8%, 7.8, and it would range in the 4 or 4.8 range. Wow. Um, so on the other side of that, um, obviously the bill wasn't perfect. Um, many on the right are calling for fixes like health savings accounts and using state opt-in systems for the current ACA. Um, many on the left are calling for Medicare for all um, or some sort of single-payer health care system. Um, were you uh, to be granted power of um, to unilaterally fix the ACA or replace uh, it with the alternative uh, well, with an alternative piece of legislation? How would you go about changing the American health care system? So what I would do is I would go back to those three measures: quality, access, and affordability. 
With regard to access, the thing that I would do first is ensure that folks came in uh, that were Medicaid eligible, that the expansion occurred in the rest of the states. And I would do that both for the perspective of, from the perspective of individuals' health care and what that means, individuals' economic uh, success. So many individuals, the number of bankruptcies driven by health care had gone down dramatically, and when you bring people into a system where they have care. And so one, on access, I would do that. The second thing that I would do is foc de focus deeply on an area that we started the work on, which is delivery system reform. And those words basically mean the idea that there are certain things that you can do to increase the affordability and the quality of our health care and thereby increase our access. There are three fundamental areas that I believe that you focus on and make progress. The first is changing the way we pay in health care. In our health care system in the U.S., much of it is fee-for-service. So you pay for a transaction, not an outcome. And so we need to drive health care to be paid for the outcome. So it's not about whether or not you receive the test. It's about if you are better. And you use tools like accountable care organizations and other things to do that. The second area is changing the way we deliver care. Well, what does that mean? It means an increased focus on prevention and making sure that we fund and support things that are preventative care and medicine. And then the second part is what you refer to as integrated or coordinated care. And what does that mean? The best example I can give you, if you know anybody who's had a hip replacement, what you want to do is pay everybody together so that they're paid for the outcome of the hip replacement. So the anesthesiologist who's putting your mom under for her hip replacement is as interested in the success of the physical therapist who's going to be giving your mom the physical therapy. And the physical therapist wants that anesthesiologist to make sure they get it right so they can get them up and get them working. And so what you do is it's related to the first point, which is you want to pay for those outcomes and have people interested in working together across the healthcare chain. Last thing is using data and information in a way that both helps the consumer so that you have your healthcare data and can use it so that you can help with that prevention, so that you can do those kinds of things, and so that providers can move that information. And if you're a healthcare provider and a doctor and you came from a different state here to American University, you can just call up the information and we know. You have your vaccines, you have everything you need. That's fantastic. That was an awesome answer. Yeah. Um, so let's jump forward to the present. Um, you're currently serving as American University's 15th president, uh, so we'd like to talk a little bit about AU. Um, so American University obviously has a reputation of being pretty liberal, um, at least amongst its student body. Um, and this has brought a lot of the same questions that we're seeing on a lot of different campuses like UC Berkeley um, involving free speech. Um, so how, as university president, do you think we should promote a campus of free speech that is tolerant of other views? Go on, go wonk yourself <laughs> would be my first suggestion of what we need to do. No, I think what you all are doing is a really important part of this kind of conversation and exactly what we need to be doing. Because I do not believe that the dichotomy that people are trying to set up between issues of inclusion and issues of freedom of speech, actually, those should be mutually reinforcing. Yep. And you know, I think what you all are doing is a part of showing that they can be mutually reinforcing. And I think it's extremely important on campuses because part of the whole point is for students who come to learn 
and see different points of view, different perspectives, and to understand how to think critically and analyze and come up with their own opinions and use facts to do that and to do that in a way that promotes civil discourse. And that's why we have created inclusive excellence as part of working on some of the issues we've had on our campus because we believe the idea and I fundamentally believe that for us to be excellent here at American University inclusion is going to be very important and certainly as a university we have had uh, the point of the arrow on some of our issues around race but it is broad, uh, broad as well and as we think about it I just think people who want to pit these two ideas against each other know this is actually as, an in, as what we do, it's part of what we do, but it's not just what we do. I believe it's broader for society that we need to remember and recall that these ideas of freedom of expression and inclusion come together. Um, when Eddie and I made the podcast, it was because when we found out we were roommates, we started talking politics. We met at Open City down the street because oh. <laughs> um, Eddie's from around here and he recommended it. And so we met and we quickly realized wow, we're very, like, we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But as we talked, we realized we can either see eye to eye on a lot of things, or we can ad agree to disagree and learn a lot from each other. And so one night we were sitting around and we said, why don't we record these conversations? I mean, they're productive conversations. And, and I think that's such an important part of discourse is that there's no such thing as unproductive discourse when you're when you're listening to the other side when you're using facts not alternative facts <laughs> and and it's going to be productive and so that's yeah. that's what we made and here. you do it in a civil respectful way mm -hmm. and you know i think that's uh and that has been my experience having had the opportunity to work in policy and policy making often when folks, you know, we're in the minority when I'm working with people of different parties on a consistent basis. And it really is about that listening and hearing. Uh, and that's also getting the clarity of what are the core objectives and where are your points of disagreement so that you understand why and how you're disagreeing. So, so our school is in D.C. We cannot ignore the guy living down the street at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, one of the biggest criticisms of President Trump is very broad, that he knew how to campaign but doesn't know how to lead. So in your mind, having served in a White House administration and various other capacities, and you're now leading one of the top private universities in the country, what are the qualities that we should look for in this next generation of leadership? I think uh, one of the most important qualities is an ability to listen, and listen broadly and deeply. I think a second um, important quality is an ability to prioritize and, and focus on outcomes, thinking about why as you're leading, what are you leading towards, why, what is the outcome. Uh, and the other thing that I think is important is building and depending on great teams. Because no individual, no matter what kind of leader you are, it's the team uh, that will deliver the outcomes that you're trying to seek. Fantastic. Um, we really want to thank you for coming on. We've really enjoyed having you as the president of our school. We've enjoyed being at American University so far. So, so thank you for this opportunity and coming on yeah. our show. Thank you very much. Thank you all for having me, and thanks for doing what you're doing. back we are back that was fantastic yeah really really great interview once again we'd like we'd like to thank uh president burwell for coming on the show uh it was um very informative and very cool and hopefully we'll have uh 
more awesome guests in yeah. the future to bring to you. Well, I want to thank the whole AU community. Um, like, we started this obviously with an attachment to AU calling it Go Wonk Yourself, which is like our wonks are like our unofficial mascot here. Um, but the Eagle, which is the school newspaper, quickly picked up the show um, and helped us get some attention. Um, and I mean, just thank you to yeah, everyone. Yeah, I, I mean, we've received just overwhelming support. Just a couple guys sitting in their dorm room talking about politics as as though we know what we're talking yeah. about. And it, it's really... I, I hope I, no one is fact-checking us. <laughs> oh, God, please don't. Um, <laughs> we need to keep this up. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's really cool seeing how people have engaged with us, and we really appreciate that. And hopefully it's valuable in some weird way. Um, I, I think I, I want to go back to the topic of campus free speech. Yep. Um, oh, I, I think what she said was really interesting, how the concept of inclusion and the concept of free speech are often pit against each other. And I think that is done by both sides. Uh, by many sides. Yeah, <laughs> many sides. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think about that analysis? No, I, I totally agree. Um, I like that she turned... I also really like that she said that the solution to exclusion and uh, intolerance is go wonk yourself. <laughs> I really appreciated that. But yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an issue, especially... Well, it's funny because we're seeing it on liberal campuses more than anything. Uh, we see it at UC Berkeley, and we see it here. Um, a lot of hate speech and some intolerance. Um, AU has had a, a messy past year when it comes to uh, racial issues on campus. Yeah. Um, a little over a year ago, we had a really bad issue right as President Burwell uh, became involved with the school. And the day that our the first female African-American student government president was sworn in, um, and, and so AU has had its issues. And so this is an issue that does hit really close to home. And I think she's right. The, the only way to, to have this sort of tolerance is to actually sit down and listen to each other. I think social media has promoted this like platform where you can say whatever you want without any repercussions. Maybe that's a good thing sometimes. Well, but not only that, it's not only saying, uh, what you, uh, whatever you want without repercussions. It's also... It, gr it gives some sort of virtue to being the most outrageous speaker and yeah. saying the most provocative thing. That's what gets you the most retweets. Linking your... Uh, it, it's very hard to tweet about something and then giving yourself uh, facts to back up what you're saying and uh, you know presenting a good, solid, coherent argument in... Uh, what is it, 280 characters now? Yep. In 280 <laughs> characters, or even a string of tweets. It's uh, it, Those aren't the tweets that you see blowing up. It's just the, like, the F-U. Uh, yep. th those are the tweets that are, are blowing up. Well, and so, like, here at AU, we have a very outspoken AU College Democrats group. It's the biggest organization on campus. But we also have a small but mighty college Republicans group. And those groups are the ideal form of tolerance. Bipartisan barbecue. They have the bipartisan barbecue. They have like a flag football game every year. Almost all of their events are co-hosted um, with also our Kennedy Political Union. And so like, I think it's just a matter of not vilifying the other and side. And you can tell that the leaders uh, set really great examples for both groups because they're they're legitimately friends. Yeah. Like, uh, they hang out and they, they like have great discussions and they get a lot done. A lot more done than if these two factions were just isolated from each other and were enemies. Well, and let's even look at four years ago with John Boehner and Obama. Like, those guys were buddies. 
And, like, yeah, they'd go on the air and they'd talk horribly about each other and to each other's caucuses, they'd obviously have different ideas, but, like, at the end of the day, those guys could sit down and have a laugh. Um, we, we saw it with, like, Reagan and, uh, I'm totally drawing a blank on the guy's name. He was the Democratic leader at the time. Um, whatever his name was. <laughs> I feel so stupid for forgetting this. Um, Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill and Reagan, they were buddies. I hope I'm getting that right. Well, Please every former me. president, uh, <laughs> before... This Trump, guy. Yeah, before Trump. They're all buddies. Like, yeah. they, you can tell, like, they get together and they all have that s- same mutual respect for the office that they occupied. And they, they just are able to separate politics from the person you're talking to. And I, I, I'm seeing a lot of this. This kind of makes me sad with Barbara Bush. And a lot of people are saying, like, oh, like, good riddance, like, another shitty person's gone. And, like, I, I've seen a lot of that on Twitter. And a lot of those are getting a lot of retweets. And it's that, a lot of more Trump folks. Are they? Yes. Well, I mean, that's just so upsetting to me because if you can't put your um, politics aside and just honor someone who has passed away, who's yep. brought a lot to uh, public discourse yep. and public policy, then, I mean, we, we can't have a healthy democracy if we're not able to put those sort of things aside. And so we started the show to show that, like, bipartisan, not even bipartisanship, but that tolerance works. Eddie and I are not people who concede our values easily. Like, you stay true to your principles, I stay true to mine, and a lot of times we won't agree on stuff, but, like, at least we can have the conversation (laughs) about it without screaming at each other and tweeting about each other. And, like, it's just, like, infuriating to me that this climate, and, like, I don't know. And, yeah, I don't know. I I think discourse has been... Political discourse has always been a very fiery yeah. area, and there, it, there's always been a very strong uh, sort of tribalism that goes along with it, where That's Democrats and Republicans. I like to think of us as uh, sort of Gore Vidal and uh, William F. Buckley-esque. Not to say we're anywhere on the same level <laughs> as them, but I just like to think of that sort of relationship where we we're, we just like get on and just sort of have our ideas come together and see where it goes. Um, I'm not going to threaten to punch you in the face, but, <laughs> but, uh, but you get the idea. It's, I, it's a matter of you have to, at the end of the day, you can be out in f- front protesting a group all you want, but at the end of the day, you have to sit down and be able to get a beer with, with your yep. opponent. And, and that is what we need. And I'm not going to try and simplify all the world's problems to that, but like, that's just the fundamentals of it. You have to have an open line of discourse and that's the only way to be tolerant of each other and to ever get anything done. Um, and so her point of inclusivity was perfect. Um, and I'm really excited to see that be the focus of her. We have, I'm just letting you know, we have like 27 minutes right now. Oh, okay. so we probably can't get to the healthcare thing. We can talk about it a little. You want to? Okay. Yeah. Will you write down where we are right now? Like 2630? 2630. Okay. I'll just fade this part out with music, and then we'll go into healthcare. Okay. Because I don't remember what I was talking All right, about. All right. Well, we're back. Um, sorry, we got distracted by something. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about a different point that she brought up about healthcare. Um, I think she did a phenomenal job of not of like actually breaking down what healthcare is and what it's supposed to do. Um, healthcare has become such a politicized issue, and I think we all want the same thing, and she addressed on that. It's accessibility and affordability. Well, and it's, it's, it's the, there's the three pillars of I couldn't healthcare. remember the third the one. Accessibility, affordability, and quality. Quality. And a lot of, um, I've heard this argument on the right a lot, 
uh, I think Ben Shapiro often cites this, is that you can have two of those three things, but not all three at once. And trying to get um, all three at once, you get none of them. I, I, I kind of buy into that in a way, because if you look at countries that uh, we look to as like the... Uh, I guess the examples for what a good healthcare system looks yeah. like, they have the accessibility and then they have the quality, but they don't necessarily have the affordability. Uh, the, um, I don't know. I don't know what you think. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know if there's a way to get all three perfectly. And that's true because a lot of people do talk about how like in Canada, there's so many people who wait in line months and months to see their doctors. A lot of that has been debunked. But I'm sure it's true in countries like Denmark, Norway, they just, there's less incentive for doctors to even participate. Um, and so they want to practice somewhere like the United States in a much more competitive, lucrative market. Um, and that's almost just like, like our medicinal industry has lost sight of what it's for. Yeah. It shouldn't, to me, medicine shouldn't be for profit. Um, but it's hard because when you take that for profit element out. The incentive to innovate exactly the incentive to innovate disappears um money has driven some of the greatest like medicinal innovations we've ever seen but Um, it can also drive the martin screlly effect where the prices of certain drugs are driven up come on (laughs) so i mean yeah there uh, there's obviously a balance there between uh drugs for profit and also driving innovation and it's a really uh, this is why healthcare is such a complicated issue because we want to be innovative. We want um, companies that deserve it to make a profit off of their uh, off of their research, yep. basically. Because a lot of this research is not cheap. It's not cheap at all, and it takes years and years to develop a drug and get it yeah, approved. Yeah, I heard that it can cost like a trillion dollars depending it's on the drug. It's crazy. <laughs> and and so then to say, well, no, you guys can't make the profit that you deserve now that you've spent years and years developing a drug and spent trillions of dollars on it. It's it's really complicated. I think that um, I to me what I care about most is the affordability of healthcare and also the quality uh, because I think in general the affordability as a consequence increases the accessibility. And now how we get to that is certainly a a point of debate that I completely honest I'm not entirely sure how exactly we get to that because Sylvia is <laughs> she I mean she well, obviously was running circles around us in terms of policy the but. question we asked her was perfect if and just to remind you if you could unilaterally change healthcare how would you do it and I almost want to put her in charge of unilaterally <laughs> fixing healthcare now um I mean this woman is brilliant she was very smart and I mean she's a Harvard alum, and uh, where else did she go? It, I think she, it's Oxford. Harvard, I mean, I can't. Yeah, it's Oxford and Harvard, <laughs> I think. incredible. Um, yeah, I think it was, a, a, once again, a great interview, and I think it was very insightful, and it really shows what can be accomplished when you just sit down and talk just raw policy with someone, and you, you start to, all the partisan lines begin to fade, and you get yep. really nitty-gritty with... I, I'm sure she can sit down with a hardcore Republican who's also willing to have the same conversation, and they can just hash it out with... They'd probably agree. Policy. Well, they probably agree with a lot of things. Yeah. And, and they definitely agree with what the end goal is. And the end goal is to have a quality um, healthcare system in which people are getting the healthcare they need for a good price, and 
and everyone gets it. So, and it's just the way that we get to that that I think people have disagreements on. But what I where I see the light in this whole argument, um, is that everyone wants the same thing. It's the, just the destination to get there. Um, when she told the story about the woman saying that the way you treat MS is wait until you're sick enough and go to the emergency room, like, that's what we all think about, is that some people are in such drastic conditions when it comes to healthcare that, like, we can no longer ignore them. Um, whether it be we expand Medicaid in the states that's not expanding it, Virginia, the Virginia General Assembly, again, voted today to expand Medicaid. It's going to the Senate, I think, tomorrow. Um, and then Florida, for example, like they ha would have the most Medicaid recipients of anyone under expansion and they haven't expanded it. And like we, whatever your view is on how to accomplish a perfect healthcare system, at least we can all agree that this is not an issue we can ignore any longer. Um, and I think she pointed that out really well. Um, she pointed out everything she said really well. Um, we're <laughs> so glad articulate. she came on. Um, and I mean, we look forward to, to any other guests. I'm looking that... forward to see how, uh, uh, to, just to see what kind of stuff she does as our president. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's going to be really cool to see the type of things that she brings forward. She's, uh, obviously She's has way a lot out of, of our league. <laughs> <laughs> she obviously has a lot of ideas, especially, uh, when it comes to want cat. Um, so I'm excited to see, <laughs> um, I'm excited to see where it goes with that. I just want to, um, I know this is not scripted, but I just wanted to make, a quick statement that I think we, uh, I think that's important to make. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we did uh, plug the fundraiser for Kenneth Clark, um, the GoFundMe, and uh, we regret to say that uh, he unfortunately has passed away. Um, and we just want to ex uh, extend our uh, deepest sympathy to his family and to everyone whose lives he touched. Obviously, we had him on the show a few episodes ago, and he's just been a dear friend to all of us. Yep. So I, I just think that was that that's an important thing to point out. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely gonna try and have his father on here because his father is one interesting guy. We got to meet the whole family and spend a lot of time with them. Um, Kenny was an amazing guy, and all I can say is Kenneth Clark, go wonk yourself. Go wonk yourself. <laughs>